Good morning and welcome. Hopefully y'all got the handout. I passed it around. So we're going to be in 1 John again. We still have about four messages in 1 John before we're out of the book. But that's fine because I like this. I hope y'all like it too. But I enjoy working through verse by verse because I feel like you get so much more out of it. There are a lot of people that they just scratch the surface and it almost becomes hate to say this, but ritualistic, you know, I'll pick a verse that it makes me feel good, or it seems to suit the purpose of my, my message, what I'm trying to say, instead of having what you say be directed by the words of scripture. And I mean, that's a principle we should apply in every category of our life, whatever we think doctrinally, however we live practically, it should be dictated by the word of God. And so we're in first John chapter three, and we're going to continue our study of the book in verse 11. And we're going to see if we can get through verse 24 today, but We'll see how it goes. Uh, let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. I'd like to do that because my brain's a little foggy today, and I just want to ask the Lord will guide me as I teach. Dear Lord, I thank you for, again, everybody here, their blessing in my life, and I pray, God, that you'll help me to be a blessing in their life. And this morning, I pray you'll give me the words to say I've studied your word. I could always study it more, Lord. You're infinite. You're eternal. And as always, when I study scripture, I'm just scratching the surface, Lord. You're always teaching me new things. But I pray, God, that what you've taught me throughout the week as I've looked at this passage, you'll help me to communicate this morning and that you'll bless them through it. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, starting in verse 11, it says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Now start right there. Generally, I don't like to, to stop in the middle of a verse, but every now and then we have to remind ourselves that the verses were created later on. And so... There's not always a hard break between the verses like is implied when we're reading our translation. So in this case, I'm going to stop at what you would call verse 14a. Okay, so the first part of verse 14. And the first point on your notes, if you have those in front of you, is the world hates us because our existence condemns them. I've always wondered, and this is something that continually perplexes me, even though I know this, what I'm about to share with you. But it's still hard for me to wrap my mind around. And y'all just try to bear with Jamie's background noise. He's praising the Lord in his own way. Well, that's what we're going to say. We're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. We're supposed to love one another, right? So we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. But anyways, something that constantly perplexes me is why in the world would people be so antagonistic towards Christianity? And Christians, of course, as the representatives of Christianity. It's always just shocked me. I mean, I get that you disagree with maybe certain moral teachings of the Bible, but why would you have a problem with the grace? Why would you have a problem with the love and the forgiveness? And then as I'm reading this, it hits me. The reason that they have a problem with our message is because it heaps coals on their own head, to use a biblical expression. It makes them feel very nervous because when you start talking about grace, as wonderful as that sounds to us, it's a scary concept to the world because grace implies guilt and forgiveness implies sin. And the level of forgiveness that we as Christians believe in is the highest level, right? But that height of forgiveness, that infinite forgiveness, that everlasting life that we have in Christ, it presupposes an infinite penalty. 
And that is something that bothers people because they think that, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. I'm not infinitely bad. How, how could I have ever done something in my short, limited time frame on this earth? How could I have ever done something to merit an infinite penalty? And that's because, in their idea, God's righteousness is limited. And we would naturally want to limit his righteousness because that would make us feel a little bit better about our own. If our light righteousness is limited, then it would make us feel more comfortable if we created a religious system where our God or gods, as we were talking about on Friday night, if they're limited in their righteousness, and generally that is the way the world has religion. I mean, pagan religion, you know, it may not be something we're as familiar with here in the Bible Belt. It's becoming more of a, a pressing concern, but I mean, that's been the norm throughout history, right? And their understanding of righteousness is, is very muddy because they have all these different gods, and these gods, they do horrible things, and it's admitted that they do horrible things. And so it makes you feel a little bit better about yourself when you mess up because, hey, you got a God out there somewhere who's probably done the same thing that you have. It makes you feel a little bit better. You've justified yourself. And so even if a lot of people live up behind the paganism, they don't hold to certain tenets of it, they still have that basic idea that, you know what, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad because God isn't that good. That's really what it comes down to. If you say, I'm not that bad, what you're saying is God's really not that good. And of course, as Christians, we are not... I'm not willing as an individual to accept God being any less than perfect. And so while the corollary of that belief is I deserve to go to hell because I've infinitely offended God, I'm so thankful that God is good and he's just. And I'm thankful that I don't have to face him on judgment day in that courtroom of justice, but I'm going to face him in the house, the home of family. And so that's what we as Christians should do is whenever we are applying the law, because we have to, guys. I mean, again, you can't talk about grace without law. It's impossible because grace implies the law. Grace implies sin. Sin implies an infraction. It, it implies the transgression of law. We talked about that last week in 1 John. So when you apply the law, never do so without in the very next breath applying the grace. And I can remember this was probably a year ago. I was preaching at Mount Zion, and I quoted... There was this uh, preacher in Wales, and this is like in the late 1700s. It was a time of great revival in, in Great Britain. And in Wales, there was one popular preacher, popular as in, you know, he had people's attention, but he was going around the countryside and preaching, but he was constantly preaching the law. Repent, 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 repent. And it was so much law and almost zero cross that he was so discouraged because he's like, no one is responding. And so he talked to a seasoned evangelist that he looked up to and respected. And the guy said, if you keep at this rate preaching that way, you're going to kill everybody. You're slaying them with the law, but you're not pointing to the cross. He's, and, and so the guy responded, the preacher who's been preaching the law so much, he responded and said, but I don't know if I have that much faith. I don't know if I'm even comforted by grace that much. He says, well, you keep preaching it and it's going to come eventually. He says, if you keep preaching grace and that's what comes out of your mouth and that's what you live, God's going to imprint that on you. And that's our goal, right? We can easily fall into the law. We can easily fall into this, this mentality. And Cain had it. Okay, Cain had this mentality of, my, why does my brother get that? Why does he get that approval from God? You know, I gave an offering to God. Isn't mine worth something? Well, why, why is Abel accepted and I'm not this entitlement? And entitlement implies I feel like I deserve something more. And so... Whenever we share the gospel, we should apply the law and make it very clear that we all fall short of it, but we shouldn't stop there. So many people do. They get up there and they talk about the law and they talk about 
They talk about judgment, the fire and brimstone preaching, and they leave it basically at, yes, Jesus died on the cross, but you've got a lot of slack to pick up. Okay. He's helped you. He's thrown you a line, but you got a lot of slack to pick up. Okay. And, and so this, this type of exertion is the opposite of what the Bible calls us to do. And it's ironic, guys, because a lot of people think that if you stop exerting yourself to save yourself, then you're going to lapse into carnality and you're going to become a sinner. That is not true. The moment I am most overwhelmed by the love of God is the moment I am most motivated to serve him. The moment I let go and say, God has got me no matter what I do, I am so enthusiastic about serving him. And I exude that. And, and that's exactly what I think Paul is trying to say. When the objectors say, well, listen, you know, if you just believe in grace, then you can just do whatever you want to do. He's like, how could you think that? Obviously, you haven't experienced grace because that's not what it leads to. Yes, that means you're saved no matter what you do, no matter what sin you commit, you are saved by God. But when you live in light of that grace, you're not going to go into sin. If you're living in light of that grace, now you can push it in your subconscious as Christians have often done. I've heard gospel preaching my whole life. I've been taught eternal security my whole life. And there have been times where I sinned. And obviously at that moment, I'm pushing that eternal security in my subconscious. It's got to be at the forefront of our mind all the time. Renewing your mind means taking what is buried underneath the surface and bringing it up constantly. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, we went to the pool the other day. All right. It's underneath the water. And you have to physically pull it up above the surface. And that's how we have to treat this grace thinking in our life. That's why we have to go back to the Bible all the time and, and understand these concepts properly. Because a lot of Bible teachers and Bible preachers and Christians, you know, they're wounded by the law all the time. And, you know, Christy, you had a conversation with someone yesterday, wounded by the law. I mean, uh, people that they know, family members, so legalistic that it's like, how could I ever live up to that standard? How could I ever do that? And and then you have, yeah, exactly. It's like, how could I ever do it? It's just a, you know, it's a losing battle. No way I could ever overcome that. But Jesus overcomes for us. And, and that's our starting point. The other day, I think it was two days ago, I saw somebody on Facebook. And of course, I, I vent to Katie. You know, that's what you do with your spouses, right? She vents to me, I vent to her. You know, we lean on each other. So I was on Facebook and I saw somebody post something. It basically said this, that you cannot be a Christian without being a disciple. And, and, I, and there was a time where I would resonate with that and say, amen, 100%. But I want to explain something. And I think that once I explain this, the listeners and y'all are going to agree with me on it. Discipleship means following Jesus, right? Now, what does following Jesus mean? To be a disciple literally means a follower. And check the Greek, okay? But what does following Jesus imply? It means you're doing something for him, okay? Because he does have commandments, does he not? When Jesus calls his disciples, he doesn't say, okay, guys, just sit there. No, he says, I want you to fulfill this commission, the Great Commission. And it may vary depending on what calling you have in the body of Christ, but you know, you're called to do something. And keeping the commandments of God at, at times is a hard thing to do because we have a sin nature that we have to overcome. But we have the Holy Spirit to aid us in that. He gives us strength. But it still is a choice, right? And sometimes it's a hard choice to make. And so I didn't re I didn't reply. And the reason I didn't reply is because I feel like sometimes it's not going to lead to fruitful conversation. If I was sitting down next to this person, it probably would. But over Facebook, you can't read tone. It's, it's just not going to work. So I didn't engage, but I was thinking, disciple means following Jesus. Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. That level of endurance and perseverance, that's hard work. Okay, And as Christians, we should be eager to do that. I am eager to do that. I'm happy to do that. Okay, But 
that's not the type of faith that John 3.16 talks about. That's not the type of faith that Ephesians 2.8 talks about. Now, I, I feel like you can't divorce the two concepts completely. One leads to the other. I mean, if someone saves you, okay, if you're in a raging river and they pluck you out, you want to show your thankfulness. You're like, what can I do for you? And so Jesus is like, well, now that you ask, uh, you're going to be my disciple because you're my child and my children are called to be disciples. But being called to do something and doing something are different, correct? Now, being a son has to do with your position. It's not like I'm being the son of God right now in the sense of like I'm exerting effort to be a son of God, a child of God. I already am. Jesus took care of that. Do my kids have to exert effort to be my children? They just are. Even when they're not thinking about the fact that they're my children, they are. Okay? And so being a child of God is something that we can't control. Jesus did that. We accepted it through faith when we first got saved. But being a disciple is something that we have to consciously think about. And we have to exert ourselves to do. Have you ever in your life not been following Jesus after getting saved? Yes. The answer is yes. There have been times in my life where I was not following Jesus. I knew that he wanted me to do something. He was saying, come over here, do this, follow me. And I said, no, I'm not going to. So was I a child of God in that moment? Absolutely. I was a disobedient one. But was I being a disciple? Was I following Jesus? Was I listening to him? Was I obeying his commandments? No, I wasn't. And so discipleship is something that we are called to do, but we don't always live up to it. And so we have to understand what discipleship is. Discipleship is our new nature expressing itself daily. And listen, I think that it will be hard without a doubt for a Christian to suppress that. I think that a backsliding Christian will be... (laughs) Steve's got a good testimony on this subject, though. I was going to say Jonah, when God told Jonah to Nineveh. Absolutely. And I think that Jonah the whole time was miserable. He's at war within himself. Steve, your own testimony about how for years you walked away from the Lord, but he was there the whole time with you. When you came back to him, he had never left your side. And my, and my mom, talking to her about it, she's like, buddy, the whole time that I went off and I did this and that, it was a moment of clarity. She's come back. You know, She was in that cycle of addiction, but she was at that point where she was you know, sober. And she said, the whole time I was miserable because I knew I was sinning against God. And so Christians are miserable when they do that, but they can do that. And that is, that's the key. I think you're signing yourself up for defeat the moment you say a Christian can't do this. Exactly. Yeah. Helmet of salvation. And, and listen, the devil is happy to knock it off her head. And I think one of the ways he does that is subtly. The devil always works subtly. I mean, when you go back to the Garden of Eden, the first thing he does, he doesn't say God's a liar. He said, did God really say that? Though? Are you sure? Are you positive? Now, sometimes he does say God's lying. But he only does that when he thinks it's going to work. When he's dealing with someone who has you know, some respect for the word of God, he doesn't just say, reject the Bible. No, he gets them to tweak it. Change it, twist it here, there. Yeah, does, is it really saying what you think it's saying? I'm pretty sure, but are you sure? Are you really sure? And so we have to get the gospel down. And so the world hates us. Going back to this first point, the world hates us because our existence condemns them. Abel's behavior was righteous, and that condemned Cain. He was like, that brother over there, too good. He thinks he's better than me. He ain't better than me. And that attitude led to this wickedness that we know about, Cain killing his brother. 
And so we could very easily take that same route if we're not careful. In fact, go back to verse 10 from last week. In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. Neither he that loveth not his brother. Now you might think, well, okay, well, I've, there have been times where I've not loved my brother. There have been times, sometimes it's hard to do, you know, if you know my brother, but anyway, <laughs> just joking. Uh, but there have been times where I've done not righteousness, right? You ever done not righteousness? It says here that the children of the devil do not righteousness. And that if you do not righteousness, you're not of God. Now, of course, Christians have sinned. So what does this mean? Does that mean Christians are children of the devil? Well, let's think about this for a second, okay? Obviously, we have a born-again nature, don't we? Okay, so where we get that from? We got it from the Holy Spirit. We got it from God. We're children of God. But we also came into this world already sinful, already having a sin nature. Who we get that from? Our parents. Our parents. Going all the way back to who? Adam. Adam, okay. And Adam sinned because of who? Did God lead him into sin? Satan, Satan did. So, yes, he, 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 he was there, okay. And I'm sure that the influence she exerted over her husband was substantial. But ultimately, it was the devil, right? So Satan is the ultimate origin of our sin nature. It is. So whenever we are doing what our sin nature demands, because it's loud and obnoxious, okay? We know loud and obnoxious people where our sin nature is a loud and obnoxious person, okay? Whenever we listen to our sin nature, we are in effect practically being a child of Satan. Now that sounds pretty extreme. But what John is doing here is he's doing contrast, light and dark. He's like, you're of God or you're not. And so in the moment when you sin, you're not of God in your actions. Practically speaking, you're not in fellowship with God. Because God's not going to be pleased with you if you're sinning against him. You're of your flesh. Okay, and the flesh, the reason we have that sin nature is because of Satan in the beginning. He's the murderer from the beginning. So I don't know whether Cain was saved or not. It is possible that Cain was saved. We don't know, so we're going to leave that up to the Lord. He's in charge. And Scripture, I don't think, tells us one way or another. Most people have concluded that he wasn't saved. But what John is saying here is, you can be like Cain. He's saying, don't be Cain. So I don't think that the point that John's trying to say is, Cain was an unbeliever. Don't be an unbeliever. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, Cain was acting the way of the devil. Don't act the way of the devil. And that's potentially possible because you got a sin nature. Absolutely. And, and it starts there. It, it really does start there. I mean, do you think that Cain just one day decided to, all right, I'm going to kill my brother now. I think that this was something that fermented in him. Okay. And that's why God spoke to him and said, Cain, you've got sin there crouching on the other side of that door, like a beast that wants to devour you. You must rule over it. And he didn't rule over it. And that's what John is telling us to do here. Rule over it. Now that will never change our position. But I tell my kids they have habits. Scotty's got a different habit than Jed does when it comes to certain things. And so I'll tell one of them, if I'm talking to him, you've got to rule over this habit. Now, no matter what they do, they're still my kid. But they have to make that choice to rule over their propensities. And we all have propensities. And one of those is to be selfish and entitled. And that is the seed. That is the root of hate. It grows from there. Okay, Cain probably had some of this jealousy going back. I don't think it was just at this point. I think there were probably other times 
in Cain and Abel's life where Abel demonstrated he was a righteous man. He wasn't perfect. He sinned, but he was a believer consistently following God, being a disciple, and Cain was not. And so I bet you there were times where Adam and Eve said, good job, Abel. I'm proud of you. And they did not say the same thing of Cain because he wasn't living that way. And God certainly didn't say that of Cain. And so what does Cain do? Instead of confessing his sin, acknowledging the struggle that he's having and repenting, he's like, no, my, my brother does not deserve this. And I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And then we saw where that led. So this is something that can very easily take hold in a Christian's life if we're not careful. Now, let's go on to point two, because we're going to have to wrap it up about halfway through. We're not going to finish. But I want to look at one more point. So let's look at 14. Once again, we'll read the whole verse. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. So what that means is our love for our Christian family, okay, all, the world in general, of course, but specifically here for our Christian brethren, is illustrative of the fact that we are no longer part of the world anymore. It's like we're set apart. Listen, a church is not a social club. A church is a bunch of people that believe that, listen, there's a cosmic struggle, a cosmic battle, and we're on this side of it. So when we love each other in that special sense that only we can because we're family and the people that are not part of us are not family, when we have that love for one another, we're showing we've passed from death to life. It illustrates it. The fact that we're meeting here today, meeting in church, is illustrative that we have passed from death to life. Now, of course, there are people that can go through the motions, but in general, this is a principle that holds true. You go to church as a Christian. Why? Because you've passed from death to life. You got saved, and this is what you do. You spend time with your family. And so that's what it means there, that we're manifesting our eternal life that we have, our sonship, our being a child of God by loving one another. And it says in uh, the second part there that he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Now, what that means is if you're not loving your brother, if and he's talking to Christians here, if you are not loving your brother, then you are acting as if you are still dead. And, and practically speaking, in terms of your fellowship with God, you are dead. Now, not positionally, not eternally, you are born again, but you're not living in fellowship with a God who is life. And there's no way you can be in fellowship with a God who is life and be dead at the same time. So you can have that life, but you can quench it. It's like quenching the spirit. I mean, this is a concept that I think people sometimes, they they have that expression memorized, grieving the spirit, quenching the spirit, but they fail to realize what it means. They'll say over here, oh, listen, if you're not a, a... if you're not a disciple of Jesus, then you're not really saved. But it's like, okay, did you read that part about quenching the spirit? What does that mean then? You can't quench something you don't have. These people quenching the spirit are saying no, and the Holy Spirit hasn't left them. Quenching the spirit means he's there. You're acting against him and you're grieving him in the process. And so what this means is we as Christians, if we are not in fellowship with God because we're not loving each other, Christians, then we're in death, fellowship-wise. And again, this is what the whole book is about, right? He doesn't question that they're saved. He's already said, you're forgiven, you've already overcome, you have eternal life, you have the Holy Spirit. Again and again, he states this, but he says at the very beginning that I'm writing this so that your joy may be what? Full. Because your joy that you received when you got saved, it can be abundant or you can miss out because this is a book about fellowship. He's talking to people that already are related to God as children. He calls them children on multiple occasions. You don't call people children of God unless they are children of God. 
So we have to be careful that we're not abiding in death. This idea of abiding, okay? It means where you're located. Are you located in the life of Christ? If you're walking with him, you're in his light, or are you walking in darkness because you're turning away and you're rebelling against him? That's what this abiding refers to. So the second point is we fail each other and the lost when we act as Cain did. And and when I say the lost, this is something we talked about. I think it was uh, on Wednesday. The Satanist who has, uh, you know, left the Satanist church in South Africa. He's published his testimony. He's saying he's a Christian now. And that's awesome. That's wonderful. Uh, praise God for that. But yeah, there's a few things that he said that it's kind of like, ah, but we'll chalk that up to maybe immaturity. But as far as him leaving Satanism, praise God for that. So he said that it had to do with, was it three or four people? There was four people. He he knew a lot of Christians, but there were four Christians particularly, and he named a few of them, that were instrumental in leading him out of Satanism. And they didn't, and one of them that he mentioned didn't even say a word. And they, they didn't try to proselytize him, evangelize him. He knew that they were a Christian after the fact. This person just came up and hugged him, knowing he's a Satanist. This is after one of his interviews where he's trying to proselytize for the Satanic Church. She comes up and hugs him. That's it. There's no conversations about God and Jesus. Later on, he finds out, he, he feels something's different about this woman. So he goes online and he looks at her Facebook and he finds out that she's a Christian. And this Christian approached a Satanist man who to many people might seem intimidating and gives and, and looks intimidating and gives him a hug and shows what he described as unconditional love. And that was instrumental in leading him out of Satanism. We fail, not just each other as members of the family, but we fail the lost. Now, when we fail each other, it's bad enough because, listen, we are family. I mean, if, you, if you're going to love anybody, you should start with your family. But if I fail one of y'all, while that can be destructive to your life, it's not eternal. The consequences are not eternal. One day we're going <laughs> to be back together. There are people in my own family that I don't get along with as of right now. And when we get into heaven, I rejoice that there will no more be sin and all the stuff that exists between us will be gone. Okay, even if it's not me. Okay, even if I examine myself and I'm honest and I'm introspective and say, I don't think I'm doing anything here. I think it's them. And maybe it is because it can be one-sided at times. Okay, that's possible. Uh, often it's not, but it can be. But it doesn't matter. When we get to heaven, well, in one case, it may, it may be a self-defense maneuver. But the whole point is when you get to heaven, all of that's being removed. It's all being removed. All the enmity, all the conflict. And so when we fail each other, that's bad enough. But think about failing the lost guys. I mean, that's one of the things that keeps me awake at night because I wonder if my actions, do they demonstrate that unconditional love? That's it. That's it right there. Uh, now he will, you know, again, eternally not hold that against us. I, I have a really big problem with people saying their blood is on our hands. The Bible doesn't actually teach that. Uh, but just knowing right now, and knowing, especially when we get before God, how many opportunities were lost because we were not being the priest that God intended us to be. What does a priest do? A priest represents God to the people. We are the priest to the masses. And we are. It doesn't matter if I'm a pastor. Y'all are priests just as much as I am. And the way we act as priests is, yes, holding fast to good doctrine, which we're all about that at Ark of Hope. We're talking about doctrine all the time in the lessons that we have. But if you have the doctrine and you don't have the love, you have a James chapter 2 situation. You have people who are rigid in their orthodoxy, but they're stale. They're stale and stagnant in their faith, and they don't have a living faith that's touching other people's lives. 
And I'll end with this verse because we'll unpack this later, but I want to read this last verse because this illustrates exactly what we're talking about. This is what it says in verse number 15. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding. Again, fellowship, abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? How can you say that you are with God, walking with him? We're buds. Me and God are close. How can you say that or even imply it to the world? When you don't have the love of God in you for these people. It's not saying, God bless you, let me pray with you. If a person has a need and you have the ability to meet that need, and they're a brother. This is talking about brothers specifically. Yeah, I think this also applies to unbelievers too, showing love in the course of evangelism. But this is talking about the brethren. So if you have a Christian brother and you don't supply that need, how could you say that you're on good terms with God? You're abiding in death. You're acting like an unbeliever. You're acting like the world. And so that's a challenge. I'm thankful that the love of God for me is eternal. I'm secure. But at the same time, I don't want my life when I get before God to be worthless. I know I'm going to be saved, but we have, as Christians, as Baptists, we have really, really got to get past the question of salvation because everybody's hung up on it in the evangelical world. Everything, discipleship, loving your brethren, loving other people, it's all about me. Am I going to make it through the gates when I get to heaven? That's not why we do these things. This should be settled. I think that if the apostles saw us today, they would be dumbfounded. They'd be like, what is wrong with y'all? Like, y'all should have been sure about your salvation years ago. Why are you still walking as if you have something to prove and something to earn when Jesus already finished the work? Didn't you read Galatians? Yeah, didn't you read my book? <laughs> so anyways, he's already won the battle. We're wasting time, aren't we? I mean, have y'all ever done somebody wasting their time doing something? Like, listen, you could have had that done five minutes ago, and you could have been doing something else. That could have been done hours ago, maybe. You could be progressing to something new, and we're still hung up on it. Because we are, we're plagued by legalism, and I think the devil... The devil loves it. He's like, I've knocked all these soldiers. Their helmets are off. And uh, and so I've got them right where I want them. But we at Ark of Hope, we know we can make an impact on those around us. Maybe not as much as them. Absolutely. Exactly. Yes. And again, it all starts with grace. If you put legalism first, backbiting is an inevitable result. That's what... Paul says in Galatians, you're eating each other, devouring one another because of this legalism. If you put grace first and you're assured of your salvation and you know the love of God for you, it's going to have a different result in that church. And hopefully it'll have a different result in our lives and the lives of those around us. But uh, with that, we will pick up this message next week and we'll finish. So thank you for listening to us and hopefully you'll listen to the next part of it next week. God bless and have a good day.